Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club of California, which is the nation's oldest and largest public affairs forum. Every year we present more than 450 forums on topics ranging across politics, culture, society and the economy. My name is Andrew Dudley. I'm chair of the People and Nature Forum, which focuses on the relationship between people and nature. It is a delight to see so many faces in the audience today, and I thank you for taking the time to attend this in-person event at the club. Should you wish to ask any questions, please write them down on these cards, which you'll find uh, by your seat, and we'll have someone collect them from you. We'll probably open up questions about 45 minutes into the conversation. It is a distinct pleasure to introduce Greg King, uh, an award-winning journalist and activist credited with spearheading the movement to protect Headwaters Forest in Humboldt County, California. He is joining us today to talk about his book, The Ghost Forest, Racists, Radicals and Real Estate in the Californian Redwoods. Now let's please give Greg a warm welcome. Thank you. How's it going, Greg? Good. Yeah, San Francisco, it has been a little while since I've been here. Last time, I think, it was 2019. And on the way here today, I got to see a Ferrari uh, racing a Lamborghini. And I saw that in 2019, too, a Ferrari and a Lamborghini. I mean, you don't get to see that much in Humboldt County. What they say about San Francisco, it's 47 square miles surrounded by reality. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was right. It was really a scene. And the Lamborghini was such an ugly color. It was really funny. Anyway, Sorry. <laughs> Well, firstly, congratulations on your book, and how's it being received so far? Uh, pretty well, you know. Um, it, uh, Science Magazine gave it an excellent review, which is kind of uh, stunning because they're, you know, kind of, you know, the peer-reviewed magazine, and they're very careful. So that was a, a very high mark um, in my estimation. And then we haven't seen anything from the majors yet. There's been a, um, some other reviews. Uh, Kirkus uh, gave it a starred review and Publishers Weekly gave it a starred review and Library Journal gave it a starred review, which is nice. Uh, and so, and you know, this, I gotta say, this doesn't really count for much, but I found out this morning, because a lot of books get this, but um, my publisher has nominated it for a National Book Award and it will also nominate it for a Pulitzer Prize. So that's a lot of books get nominated, okay? But since you asked, that happened. <laughs> a bit of a round of applause there. Yeah. Uh, good luck. Thank you. <laughs> so before we get into the book, can you tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and where you spent your formative years? Uh, yeah, um, probably most people here have been to Guerneville, Russian River, Sonoma County, uh, yeah, West County, uh, you know, um, my family, who's members sitting here, my sister Anna is here, and uh, we grew up. Uh, my other sister Laura is she here? She's late. She's late. <laughs> we we uh, can wait. No, that's okay. Um, can't wait for Laura. Uh, so, uh, in any case, uh, we all grew up out there, and you know, we had a very um, wonderful, privileged middle class, you know, upbringing in a very rural town, uh, in a you know modest home on a hill. Uh, surrounded by uh, what used to be uh, one of the greatest forests, if not the greatest, that ever grew anywhere on the planet. And it had all been cut down uh, prior to 1900. But we grew up with the lore of this forest, understanding that there were these magnificent trees uh, that nobody for three generations had seen. Uh, even our grandfather, who was born in 1903, uh, just a few miles downriver from us, 
uh, did not see this great forest. Uh, and his uh, uncle, uh, our great-great-uncle Thomas, uh, my first name is Thomas, my nephew Thomas Heidinger is here. Uh, it's a name handed down, but he was um, a, a timberman in the 19th century, and he saw and logged 1,100 acres of the lower Russian River in Monterio. Uh, so they saw it, and they had come from Canada. So that we have deep roots there, and we grew up knowing this and grew up knowing about the forest, but not ever. We saw a remnant grove in Armstrong Woods, which probably a lot of people have been to that, uh, in, north of town. And so that was, that was our upbringing with this little rural life. So what was your earliest memory of being in a forest and particularly seeing your first redwood tree? Well, you know, I think I was probably an infant, you know, in, in Armstrong Woods. We went there all the time growing up. And when I was old enough, uh, we were old enough, we were allowed to ride our bikes there from school, which was on Armstrong Woods Road. And I remember, and this is completely foreboding now, but um, riding my bike just any willy-nilly through the woods you know, through the big trees, you know, and it was very little visited then in the 60s and early 70s. Um, and so I couldn't even tell you my earliest memory because like my daughter also, her first uh, trip there, I believe she was just a few months old. Uh, you know, it was, it was always there. Fantastic. So just to start with some context, there's a, a fascinating section in the book where you discuss the evolution of redwoods, which started 200 million years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, beginning with the Dawn Redwood. Can you take us through that, uh, you know, how that evolution has worked and, you know, how the trees have moved around and to, right. to mitigate against the kind of change in climate? Yes, it was the Redwood survived not only changes in climate, uh, they uh, survived the break of, of a Panagia, I think it's how it's pronounced, the, the, the supercontinent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it survived the uh, Chicxulub, uh, if that's how it's pronounced, uh, meteor, in, you know, 60, 70 million years ago that landed down in Yucatan and wiped out most life on Earth, including the dinosaurs. But the redwoods prevailed, very hardy tree, tree. but they always have needed moisture. Uh, and so they have followed the moisture and they, they're travelers. And they ended up, as we know it now, in this slim uh, ribbon of coastal habitat in northwestern California. And that's it. That's coast redwoods. And the cousin sequoia, giant sequoia in the Sierra, uh, has an even smaller range. Excellent. <coughs> the Dawn Redwood was considered to be extinct, but then it was found in southwest China, was it? South yes, China. in the 1950s. Uh, it was believed to have been extinct for uh, 20 million years. Uh, and then a, a remnant was found, one very large tree, and I think there were a few others, but not many. And so immediately botanists began propagating it. And uh, when I moved to a house in West Sonoma County in uh, Grayton, uh, that house had two Dawn Redwoods planted in the front. So they've gone over the, all over the world now. You find them. And they were a, fra- a favorite tree to plant on graves. Uh, so you find them in old cemeteries, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. And isn't it in Colorado you can find some stumps up there? Yes, uh, 50, 60 million year old uh, fossilized redwood stumps, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because they grew there at one time, that a long time ago. Yeah. So then, as you say, they settle along the coastline of North America where they proceed to survive earthquakes, mm-hmm. you know, uh, floods, wildfires, and hurricanes. Right. Until the white settlers arrive. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, the native populations lived among the redwoods in some areas for about 10,000 years. Most areas more like four to 6,000 and used the redwood 
uh, impacted it a little bit, but uh, you know, their exploitation was for their needs, um, you know, uh, structures and canoes, uh, other things. Um, but they really didn't impact the habitat at all. So they lived alongside the redwoods, never inside, because you can't really live inside a redwood forest. It's, mm -hmm. it's too gloomy. Yeah. What was it John Steinbach said? He said that redwoods are a stunning memory of what the woods was was like once long ago, yes. what the world was like. What the world was like, yes. Yeah, he said that beautifully. And uh, he was awed by by the redwoods when he came through on his travels with Char Charlie, you know, book, you know, and he traveled the U.S. Uh, and that was a, that and Montana really stuck with Steinbeck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Going back to when you were younger, did your family have the same kind of understanding around conservation? Toward, towards the redwoods? Not necessarily toward the redwoods. Um, there wasn't really an awareness at that time, not only in our family, but I think across the, the U.S. Uh, until the Redwood National Park struggle really started to boil up in the mid-1960s. Uh, but that, that really the redwoods were so in danger, you know, of being um, eliminated almost. Uh, at that time, there were in the mid '60s, there were about 320,000 acres <clears throat> left of the original two million acre redwood biome, and uh, you know there wasn't much talk of that in our in our household that I remember. What I do remember is uh, my parents had purchased some property adjacent to Armstrong Woods, and this is in the book. Uh, but going up there uh, with our parents and. Uh, you know, we'd get firewood, but dad never cut a, a standing live tree. Uh, and they were very easy on the land um, intentionally. And they loved uh, the redwoods and, and our, our kind of semi-wild West Sonoma County home. And it really was in those days and still is in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it seems inconceivable that out of the original 2 million acres of, of redwood forests that in California, only 4% or 80,000 hanging acres remain. Right. It's crazy, isn't it, to think that what, what's, what's happened and transpired? Yes, in a relatively short, short time. time. Mm -hmm. Ecological instant is what I call it. Uh, and there's uh, you know, a reason for that, and it's well laid out in the book, uh, beginning uh, in the early 20th century when uh, redwood preservation attempts really began in earnest. Uh, you know, Big Basin started in the late 19th century, the efforts, to, and that was about a two-decade fight to get that 1,500 acres that they eventually got, basically almost the last old-growth redwoods in, in uh, Santa Cruz County. Um, but uh, there had to be something, from the industry perspective, something had to be done about the public's growing awareness of deforestation of the redwoods and, and calls for preservation. Mm -hmm. And so... From about the 1910s all the way through the Headwaters Forest campaign, uh, we saw various public relations campaigns uh, to convince the public that the redwoods were being saved. And then in the 60s, what you heard from the timber industry uh, and in some part from Save the Redwoods League was the redwoods are saved, even though there were these 320,000 acres left. Um, and so it is an extraordinary loss, this, you know, 96%, uh, 1.92 million acres of logging, uh, most of which occurred uh, in 100 years, uh, you know, dating back to 1850, certainly, uh, but uh, most of it was extremely rapid after the 1880s. 
uh, and especially after the turn of the century. So just to go back to the arrival of the kind of settlers, you know, within a few decades, you know, the land had been privatized through an illegal land grab where people took advantage of the homesteaders law. Can you take us through how this worked and how the land became consolidated into fewer and fewer hands? Right. The, the great Redwood land scams, and not just Redwood, but the, the forests of the West. Uh, you know, in the beginning uh, of the land grant era, all the way back to 1850s uh, in the West, but also especially in the 1860s with passage of the Homestead Act, uh, the Morrill Act, uh, and a couple other um, Homestead Acts, uh, settlers were allowed generally to occupy 160 acres um, for a modest fee of, say, $1.25 to two fifty dollars an acre. Some of the earlier acts, the land was free. Um, and, but you had to homestead it. You had to build a structure, and you had to show you're being productive and turn it into food and, you know, to get the West settled and, and growing. Um, and so uh, throughout the West... Uh, the uh, industrial empires that were growing so quickly by the late 1870s just exploded with joy at the passage of the 1878 Timber and Stone Act, which uh, John Muir called the Dust and Ashes Act. And it basically opened up troves of heretofore untapped millions of acres, uh, ancient forests from Mendocino County north to the Canadian border. And in the redwoods, a dollar twenty-five to two fifty an acre was ten to a hundred times less than the groves were worth. So they were basically giving them away. So what happened was in Humboldt County, in particular, but Mendocino and Del Norte as well, there were significant uh, and extensive networks of capitalists, um, of timber barons, industrialists who conspired to uh, hire dummy entrymen, they were called. Entrymen were people who would go in uh, to the land office, the U.S. land office that would get set up in these places uh, throughout the country, and uh, claim 160 acres. They would walk out. They would immediately sign it over to a middleman who would consolidate them and sell them to a moneyed interest. And in Humboldt County, the main theft was of 124,000 acres, of some of the densest forests in the world, uh, standing north of Arcata on Humboldt Bay. <clears throat> Excuse me. By the way, my allergies, they're really happening, and so this is like, come down here and, I, and it explodes. Um, in any case, so that one brazen theft of 124,000 acres garnered headlines in the New York Times, investigations by the Interior Department, um, Investigators were uh, assaulted and bribed, and uh, it last, this went on throughout the 1880s, and nothing happened. Uh, the land was, um, a lot of it was uh, ensconced with the Central Trust, um, Central Trust Company in Manhattan at 40 Wall Street, the site of today's Trump building. 
and once it went into the central trust, in those days, the trust served a lot of purposes, one of which was to obfuscate what was really going on once the deeds are in the central trust, who's buying what, and et cetera. And, and it's for some reason, the, you know, with probably intention, you know, federal authorities were unable to really extract some of these lands from central trust. The ones from the 124,000 acre theft that were most valuable, closest to transportation, were about 50,000 acres were put into the central trust holding. And eventually this 124,000 acres was all sold off by 1900 to major capitalists and timber barons, uh, locked into private ownership, and the public never got it back and never really saw their, their value out of those lands. So do you think at this stage it was legally not possible for the government to undo these land grants? I mean, couldn't they have just seized them and took them back? Yes, absolutely. Um, and there was one instance in the Redwoods, and I talk about it in the book, uh, when 20-odd thousand, maybe it was closer to 30, I can't remember the exact number, were taken back. Um, and it was, I think, in large part because the Interior <coughs> Department's brother was one of the purchasers. Uh, the interior head of the Interior Department, his brother was a major uh, timber scammer. And uh, it was embarrassing for the administration when that came out. Uh, he had purchased, this was Villas, uh, the uh, Interior Secretary was Villas, and his brother Villas uh, bought these lands with Henry Putnam, who was a notorious land scammer and had consolidated 900,000 acres earlier uh, in the North Woods, which became the first uh, uh, endowment for Cornell University, established Cornell. And so Cornell's foundation was on the illegal consolidation and then uh, extraction from the federal government uh, and then eventual sale to timber companies to benefit Cornell um, back in the 1860s. And uh, so and a lot of these were, um, these were uh, land grants to benefit to colleges. So UC Berkeley, I'm getting way far afield here, but UC Berkeley was created um, out of a uh, theft of more than 10,000 acres on the Eel River, the most spectacular riverside grove ever in history anywhere, uh, that went to uh, um, UC Berkeley to, as a founding endowment in 1868. Uh, and it founded UC Berkeley, and that land uh, became Pacific Lumber Company, uh, where I ended up tree-sitting uh, 120 years later. Wow. So what was, what was the impact on Native Americans through all this? Oh, the impact was extreme from the beginning. As soon as white men and women got to these areas, uh, in large part, you know, the the it's interesting because you know the racist subtitle has more to do with the white supremacists that we find in in these realms. And I'll just let the reader, unless you want to talk about that later, but um, but the um, the the racism was endemic in this nation in terms of. Uh, the Europeans arriving here and not seeing the original inhabitants as people uh, or conveniently saying, you know, they're, you know, just uh, digger races and, you know, lower forms of humanity and they don't know what they're doing. They're wasting the land. And of course, they were exterminated intentionally and, and, and also through disease, but malnutrition, their lands were taken. So in northwestern Humboldt County, um, there's a great book by Benjamin Madley called uh, Genocide in Northwestern California that covers this remarkably. Um, the um, genocides in Northwestern California were some of the most extreme in the country. Uh, there were whole tribes wiped out where there are no members left today. Uh, and so in Redwood Country, um, you know, they, these lands, they didn't, 
use the redwoods that much, but it was still their territory. Mm -hmm. uh, the Yurok, the, uh, the Wiat in the Humboldt Bay area, the Talua. Talua suffered extreme massacres in 1860. Uh, and also in 1860 on Humboldt Bay, um, coordinated uh, massacres directed by the elite uh, from those areas. You know, it wasn't, it, they were, it was done by these horrible marauding men, but it was directed by elites to get the land. Uh, and so the impact on Native Americans, as we know, across the U.S. was just extreme. And one of the uh, least reported genocides, at least with that word, you know, and starting to come out now. But what happened to the Native Americans it really, I mean, uh, the, the Nazis in the Nuremberg trials cited uh, what the Americans did to the Indians as, you know, you guys did this like we did at Auschwitz, right? I mean, it was, it was pretty interesting that that, that occurred. So you, you can't say anything good except for individual acts of kindness and, and save, saving some of these, these folks and, and helping when the, the local people could. But then they were often ostracized, run out of town, some of them killed for helping Indians. Uh, so it's a sordid history. I don't go into it much in the book. Uh, it's been well covered, and I highly recommend Ben Madley's book. Thank you. There's a phrase in your book which says a, a life might start in a redwood crib and end in a redwood coffin. Right, right. <laughs> it speaks to the versatility of the wood. And I yeah. guess in the context of, of uh, you know, America developing, you know, railway sleepers, telegraph poles, roof shingles, stave pipes. I mean, the demand is just exponential, isn't it? So, you know, the redwoods didn't really have a chance from, from a demand perspective. Pretty much, especially in, beginning in the 1880s. Uh, Western industry really began to take off. I mean, it had been brewing for three decades since the 1850s. San Francisco grew very rapidly in the 1850s, and Redwood was used to grow San Francisco. The Hooper brothers, who I talk about in the book, um, timber barons, uh, were great suppliers of Redwood in the 1850s and right through the into the early 20th century, and were involved in the Scottish land scam. Um, but really in the 1880s, hence the Timber and Stone Act of 1878, kind of anticipating this need. And Redwood, by the 1880s, also it was understood how versatile it was. Uh, no other wood product could do what Redwood did. And you mentioned the stave pipes, and I can talk at length about that if you want. Um, the, one of the things that, that people don't understand, I think, is that Redwood was used in housing. My house that I live in right now in Humboldt County is made of redwood. A lot of houses down here are made of made all redwood still. Um, but that was not the principal use. And if redwood was not used in housing, the houses still would have been built out of some other wood or some other material. Uh, but redwood was irreplaceable to undergird industry, in particular through the stave pipe. And for people who don't know what a stave pipe is, uh, redwood was milled in 12 to 24 foot lengths and notched on each end, and the pieces were about six inches wide and up to three inches thick. And they would be put together end to end, and then closed, and then banded with steel hoops. And these could be constructed anywhere for miles at almost any size. The widest redwood stave pipe was 16 feet in diameter. Imagine the amount of water that that it brings. So, uh, in the late 1890s, uh, the um, Arroyo, Arroyo de los Reyes, I think it was called, uh, was drained in Southern California with a redwood stave pipe. It was one of the first uses of a redwood stave pipe. And lo downtown Los Angeles was built there. 
So this beautiful, important uh, wetland habitat was replaced by downtown LA. That's, I don't think that's a very good deal. Um, and so but that was kind of the start, you know, it was, it was draining. And then there was, of course, water delivery. So water delivered to Los Angeles and throughout, I use LA as an example in the book um, of, of the importance, but it, it was happening throughout the West. Uh, Phoenix, Tempe, Arizona, all had redwood stave pipes delivering water. Uh, Phoenix was allowed to grow as a city because of a 27-mile redwood stave pipe. 27 miles is a lot of redwood. Um, no other wood could do that because it had properties. It allowed it to not decompose. You could use other woods, but you'd be going around fixing leaks. That's all you'd end up doing. You didn't have to do that with redwood. Uh, the longest-lived redwood stave pipe was over 100 years old, and it was decommissioned just in 2007 by the Homestake Mine Company uh, in continuous use. Mm -hmm. So the most important use of the redwood stave pipe, again, and, and the redwood tanks, right? So these cities grew the water companies, the East Bay, East Bay Water District grew out of redwood stave pipes, uh, you know, all, the whole thing, all the water. In California, was delivered through redwood stave pipes and stored in redwood tanks, and that and you know industry uh, and agriculture and cities grew with redwood that way. The most important use, though, was <coughs> hydroelectric dams, and the redwood stave pipe revolutionized the the means by which uh, power producers could deliver water to their turbines. No other wood could do this. No other material could do it stitched across miles of terrain, giant stay pipes with a huge amount of water from, taken from dams throughout the Sierra Nevada. And that powered especially the growth of California. The empire that we know now of California was built on redwood stay pipes. And that power, that electricity, that for decades the redwood stay pipe pro provided you know, cheaply, efficiently, with, with, you know, without interruption. And those were key components of allowing the growth of this state. And no other material could have done that. Somehow the growth would have occurred. It would have been slower, I contend, mm -hmm. that um, without the redwood, uh, other materials would have degraded. Metal, steel wasn't developed yet until about the 1930s when it could withstand these things. Only cast iron could, could work as well as redwood, according to a UC Berkeley professor in the 1910s, uh, and that was untenable. You couldn't take cast iron for, for 28 miles across the Sierra Nevada, you know, and it's a 14-foot diameter pipe, um, but you could do it with redwood. Uh, so that was, that was critically important to the growth of what we now know as California. You feature in the book uh, the lumber baron A.B. Hammond. What was his role and impact in all of this? A.B. Hammond is an interesting cat. He came from... Um, I'm going to forget, but he's in New Hampshire or Maine. A uh, lot of lumbermen came from there. And, and uh, so he and his brother made their way across the U.S. <clears throat> to the Missouri River and took the Missouri River up to Montana in the 1860s. And the first thing they did was they um, began supplying uh, steamships with uh, cordwood. They set up cordwood operations, just cut whatever trees they wanted, and they supplied the steamships they needed the wood. Um, eventually they built up a small stash. The brother went home, A.B. Hammond kept going. He ended up in Missoula and founded a timber empire where he, he garnered consolidated, illegally consolidated land grants there and also just took wood and supp supplied Marcus Daly with, uh, mine shafts for the, uh, the great copper mines up there. 
and gold mines in the Sierra Nevada, and it's continued. He owned all of the buildings, four um, corners, four square blocks on the main drag in Missoula in the late 19th century. He moved down to Oregon, ended up owning almost 200,000 acres there and 150 miles of rail lines and uh, was responsible for providing most of the spruce during World War I for the plains. Uh, you know, destroy the forest to destroy another country. That was always a good one. <laughs> um, and then uh, Hammond continued his migration. He started coming to San Francisco. And San Francisco is thick in this book. San Francisco was a city-state. This terminal right here was the second busiest intermodal transportation terminal, the ferry building, uh, the ferry, or the, the whole terminal here uh, in the world after London. Uh, and uh, so this was one of the world's great economic empires, and everyone knew it. Uh, so Hammond started coming here in 1890, and uh, in 1900, he built a mansion in Pacific Heights, moved his family down here. And that was the same year he purchased uh, the Vance Redwood Company on the Mad River in Humboldt County, and that came with about 8,000 acres of virgin redwood and two mills, and it wasn't the most redwood owned by a timber baron, but it was about the most board footage because these were enormous trees. The, he got the creme de la creme of the redwood in that, you know, close to Humboldt Bay, major transportation route. And then he can just immediately expanded. He had major investors, including Collis Huntington, whose office was right down here. Um, he was mostly based on the East Coast, right next to the Central Trust Company. Uh, he was the uh, one of the big four founders of the Central Pacific and Southern Pacific Railroads. And he and the Southern Pacific, he spent three months here in, in the nine floors uh, that Southern Pacific had in this building. And Hammond got, put his office in that building as well. They were int intimately linked. Um, so Hammond uh, bought up uh, 30,000 acres of the stolen Redwood land grant up in Humboldt County. Uh, continued buying until Hammond, I think, owned about 50,000, 60,000 acres. I don't know. It's in the book. Uh, it almost doesn't matter after a while. They, they just continued these, these timber barons to consolidate ownership of great tracts of land. Mm -hmm. um, so Hammond continued uh, this you know, quest to become the world's lumber king and, and was extremely wealthy. Um, I think he was well-liked. Um, and, uh, it was a, you know, denizen of San Francisco, his wife was, the wives were always making the society pages, of course, for their jewelry, their dresses and everything. They were much more than that, but that's where you learned a lot about the families, you know, cause that's all you could write about the women was, you know, that kind of thing. So Hammond's wife was a socialite here and, um, hobnobbed and, uh, yeah, so Hammond, I could talk a lot about Hammond, but you probably want other interesting cats to talk about. Yeah, so just to, I, I guess it was business as usual for many decades. And then in 1902, there was a kind of a significant development in Santa Cruz when California's first state park was established. That's right. What, what happened there? Yeah. Well, that was about a two decade old struggle uh, to save these last. And during those two decades, you know, thousands of acres were logged down there. Um, Santa Cruz. It, it's, the redwood biome is, is funny because it kind of um, comes down into Sonoma County and, and wraps down on the Russian River and then kind of peters out. And then there's some, you know, redwood and Marin Mill Valley in particular was a trove and that was all cut. <laughs> and uh, 
So, uh, you know, and then, you know, get to San Francisco and, and the East Bay. The East Bay, just working my way south here, uh, there was a six-square-mile uh, island of ancient redwood in the East Bay that I failed to put in the book. I actually have a note at the top of this draft, you know, that I'm cutting. I had to cut 100,000 words out of this draft. You know, it was way over. Um, and I'm so glad the publisher made me do this. And I, they still gave me a generous allotment over my contractual word uh, agreement. But um, it was, uh, so I said, put in somewhere, you know, this text, and I totally forgot. But um, it's a six square mile uh, grove of enormous trees, many, many trees over 30 feet in diameter, probably among the most extraordinary groves of trees in the world that ever stood. Uh, and these were all cut down very early, prior to about 1870, but even starting as late as the 1840s. Uh, and so if you go now to the, the post office at Canyon, you can see the, I don't know if they're still there, but I remember when I went to Canyon in the eighties and there are these two enormous stumps, you know, just going from here to here, you know, so, you know, 30 feet wide, my house is 30 feet wide. Uh, and there were several and they were tall. Some of them were rumored to be 400 feet tall. The tallest tree in the world today is 379 feet. And a couple of them were so tall that they were used as guides for ships coming in, uh, the San Francisco Bay. So that was the East Bay Redwoods. Not a lot of them, but there's a significant, weird, isolated grove. And then you get down to Santa Cruz and the range um, expands, San Mateo as well, um, but the range especially expands down there towards Santa Cruz County, uh, San Lorenzo River, uh, rich, very rich redwood area there. And so during these two decades, uh, there was a lot of logging that went on. But finally, this people's campaign, which um, garnered a lot of powerful individuals toward the end, which is why it happened, uh, they um, were able to wrest this uh, 1,500 acres of, of old growth redwood uh, that is now Big Basin State Park, the first state park in California. So what's interesting here is that the the laying of the railroads, the invention of the motor car, begins to open up access to the redwoods yeah. where the public are seeing for the first time these majestic redwoods and and then the shock of the clear cutting right. next to it. So you're seeing this movement of or this 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 movement of people that are not happy with what's going on. Yes. Um, they, as I note in the book, uh, redwood clear cutting is a savage act um, in those days and today. Uh, the you know clear cutting leaving. Uh, you know, massive stumps everywhere, and it was all burned. Uh, the way, especially back in those days, uh, you know, in the beginning, late 19th, early 20th century, all the trees were cut, they were debarked, and all that material was left, and then uh, it would uh, dry, and in summer or fall, they would burn it. And then that would get rid of all the slash, uh, the bark, and all the limbs and everything. Uh, it's just, I mean... I can't imagine what it was like because up there in particular, the fog banks, you know, fogs thrive because there's redwood and the fog captured these stories I've read where it captured all the smoke, not only from that, but from the mills because they were all wood fired mills and it was a toxic stew and it was almost unbreathable. Some of the world's best air otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they would burn it all. And, uh, and it was just, so getting to your question, in 1914, the first train reached Humboldt County. It was the first time anybody outside of industry could easily reach. You had to take a ship, and it would take days, and it was dangerous. And you never knew if the ship was going to get in the harbor of Humboldt Bay. And then once you were in, you didn't know when it was going to be able to leave. So it was, it was not easy. The train changed everything in 1914. So tourists started coming up, as they often did, um, when there's transportation. 
and uh, they started witnessing these scenes, these apocalyptic. First, they would go through the ancient groves. Oh my God! You know, oh look at these massive trees. They'd never seen anything like it. On and on and on. And then they would smell the smoke first, and they, you know, think, oh, there's a fire up there. And then they would come in to these scenes, and it would open up into this devastation that was unbelievable. So uh, people began to complain, and they, uh, you know, rose a stink as people will, and and it really led to uh, a very important event, which I think we're going to get to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the industri- industrialists realized that the redwood groves had to be protected from preservation. Yes. Because obviously their business was going to be impacted. Yeah. Which led to probably the earliest example of greenwashing and the founding of the Save the Redwoods League. Right. So take us, take us from there. Please. Right. The un- undoubtedly the most controversial section of the book, mm-hmm. um, also the longest, uh, and the most phenomenal uh, discovery that I that I made, uh, I made a lot of wonderful discoveries. The immersion in, in the research, uh, you know, I, it has occurred over decades, but especially since two thousand nine, and then in the mid twenty tens, the league, working up to its twenty eighteen centennial celebration, um, uh, paid Bancroft Library to curate and archive its its uh, papers about 200,000 pages. So in 2017, I was lucky enough to begin wading through that at Bancroft and learned immense amounts about the Redwoods themselves and, and all different aspects, but especially about the League. And the only conclusion that was possible, and I didn't go into it looking for this, the only conclusion possible was that the League was created specifically to prevent Redwood protection so that industry could continue using it. And this is the same, the same year, within months, within months of um, this professor named Echeverry at UC Berkeley, uh, and not only Echeverry, but also the, uh, some standards, I can't remember it's in the book, but some standards uh, organization um, that declared the only real wood you can use for these stave pipes is redwood. And, and that was the moment when redwood... Uh, the stave pipes were critically important because the power that they were producing and transforming the West. Industries were growing at the fastest rate in human history because of this electricity. Mm-hmm. And they understood they had to protect especially the finest groves because the redwood for the stave pipes, as Echeverry noted, uh, had to come from the bottom half of the biggest tr- trees, no knots. It had to be knot-free which means no, no branches growing when it's cut, where it's cut. Um, those are the best groves. So they had to preserve that for industry. And so to give an example, um, do you guys want spoilers? I mean, if you want to read the book, uh, you know, I mean, I get, oh, spoilers, okay. So the, the most fascinating find, and what was also good about this was, you know, the League for its 2018 celebration put out uh, its own 600-page history, um, by uh, this uh, historian named Joseph Enbeck, who was the League historian. And I'm reading that, and I'm going through also these papers, you know, for the League, and I see this name in these papers, and I'm like, okay, there's a lot of names, a lot of people involved in the League. So I'm sorting through the names, and I'm, you know, this is taking years, really, to sort through all this. But there's this mention in Enbeck's book about, uh, you know, they, they incorporated in, in 1920, 
you know, got together really in, in 1919, uh, had the first meeting, had the first directors chosen in 1919. And then in 1920, they got incorporated with the help of a young attorney named Wigington Creed. And aside from the, the Pulp Fiction fascination of that name, um, I was like, well, how did he help them get incorporated? And who is this guy? And what Engbeck and the League didn't reveal and couldn't was that Wigington Creed was a founding director in 1919, uh, among four other industrialists or supporters of industry. And the reason that turned out to be important, and then I learned that. I'm like, okay, well, let's look into this guy, Wigington Creed, just for the name alone, right? <laughs> and I learned that he is among the world's greatest purveyors and consumers of Redwood products. He owns Redwood lands and brokers them. He's an attorney. He's a very powerful attorney. He is a director of East Bay Water Company, which uses an enormous amount of Redwood. And uh, he inherited all this from C.A. Hooper. He married Hooper's uh, daughter in 1904. Uh, and C.A. Hooper is the Redwood Baron you've never heard of. Uh, and he was amongst the most important Redwood Barons because I don't think he necessarily invented the stave pipe, but he hired this Dutch guy to perfect it in 1902 and founded the Excelsior uh, Redwood Pipe Company. And that uh, was the beginning of Redwood State Pipes in the West. So he inherited this empire from C.A. Hooper, Wigington Creed did. Uh, and then the, uh, really the, the crowning glory of this story was that he was writing, he didn't just help the League get incorporated, he wrote the bylaws and articles of incorporation, one of the most major Redwood timber barons and consumers in the world, uh, in 1920, weeks before he was about to take the helm as president of PG&E, which was the world's largest consumer of Redwood stave pipes. And <laughs> PG&E in 1910 needed so much Redwood for their stave pipes that they bought the um, Redwood Manufacturers Company, of which Wigington Creed was also president. And he remained president. Uh, and they bought that company that was founded by C.A. Hooper to make stave pipes. Uh, and, and Wigington Creed was an owner, uh, president, director of that company. And so that's who founded Save the Redwoods League. It wasn't the three titular white supremacist founders that met at, at, uh, at Bohemian Grove in 1917. Mm -hmm. It was... William H. Crocker, son of the, the um, <coughs> railroad baron and, and, just, and land baron, everything baron. William H. Crocker was one of the most powerful individuals in the country. It was really the king of San Francisco. Um, and so he was a founding counselor, not director of the league, but Crocker worked principally through proxies, uh, including one of the uh, near founding, he came in just months after the league got incorporated, um, or even before that, uh, was a man by the name of James Sperry. Sperry was Crocker's right-hand man in oil development in Southern California, and he um, became an early director of Save the Redwoods League alongside Wigington Creed and three other industrialists. And that's who created Save the Redwoods League. And then they went on to um, uh, derail 
several important initiatives to save redwoods, including by the federal government for national parks twice, and by the state governments to preserve 20,000 acres on Mill Creek, which they had constantly said we want saved, and they derailed those efforts. And those are all documented in the book. Um, But what I found really surprising was that this went on throughout the 20th century, that they spiked these efforts to save redwoods. And the evidence is so irrefutable that I'm I'm so curious as to what the response is going to be because there's no no denying that these industrialists created and then ran the league. J.D. Grant was a founding director, and he built the Copco Dams, um, the world's largest, single largest redwood stave pipe. He built it, uh, 16-foot diameter, uh, and he owned you know real estate everywhere and, and owned uh, a... Um, with Wigington Creed, owned uh, a, a uh, metal a uh, metal foundry, uh, steel steel factory, um, on and on and on. So it's all in the book. But uh, yeah, that's it's, it was fascinating. And I did not set out really to write. I I thought I was going to mostly ignore the league because they, I thought they were weak and ineffectual. Mm-hmm. And then I realized it was much more than that. And just to touch on this briefly, when you were going through those documents, you started to uncover a lot of uh, material around the emerging field of eugenics yes. um, and scientific racism, <coughs> which you say is a venomous strain of white supremacy that would eventually inform the Holocaust. Yes. How Can you describe what exactly how, how you uncovered uh, this and, and how you feel it was connected with the exploitation of the Redwoods, how this kind of came together? Right. Um, it's, it's interesting. You know, uh, there are, have been a lot of analogies made uh, between these white supremacists, all three founders of Save the Redwoods League, uh, Madison Grant, John Miriam, and, and uh, Henry Fairfield Osborne were prominent white supremacists, eugenicists. For those of you, probably most people know what eugenics is, you know, the, the study and belief that there are superior races, of course, white Nordic people being at the top of that list, according to the eugenicists. Um, and so all three of these uh, were prominent in that, and it was a field at that time. It was a scientific field. It was taught at colleges. Uh, people gave speeches on the floor of Congress, members of Congress, um, you know, in support of eugenics research. Uh, the Carnegie Institution had a major uh, eugenics research. And John Merriam, one of the titular founders, was president of Carnegie uh, in on, in Washington. And they, um, Carnegie, the the eugenics research foundation. I could be biffing that, but um, you know, developed the uh, hundreds of thousands of cards on Americans, on traits, and where they're from, you know, what their nationalities, et cetera, their, their ethnicity and stuff like that, that would be emulated by the Nazis uh, through their Hollerith, um, IBM Hollerith punch card systems in the 1930s and 40s um, that IBM sold to the Nazis right up into World War II and also continued to control a monopoly on the punch cards through the war through their uh, Swiss subsidiary. They sold them the punch cards. Uh, so in any case, this is all really well documented in uh, Edwin Black's book, um, the title, which I can't remember. He wrote War Against the Weak, uh, which is about eugenics, and then, oh, uh, IBM and the Holocaust. Uh, so Edwin Black is a scholar and very important books there. So in any case, uh, the, the eugenics angle is often played up as uh, you know, these guys wanted to save the um, the master race of trees. And there was actually even a prominent historian in Humboldt County who recently wrote an article that quoted Madison Grant, one of the founders, as saying that. Uh, Madison Grant never said that. 
what's interesting is, first we have Madison Grant over here, this virulent, hateful white supremacist who wrote The Passing of the Great Race in 1916. <clears throat> and I don't know if you, anybody has heard of The Passing of the Great Race, but it advocates for elimination of defectives. Uh, it uh, employs all kinds of uh, education or um, uh, scholastic jargon uh, and, and uh, terms and qualifications to categorize people according to races, again, with Nordic white uh, uh, people on top. And, uh, you know, Adolf Hitler in 1933, upon taking power in Germany, wrote a letter to Madison Grant saying, this book is my Bible. So a horrible, horrible individual when it came to people. Mm -hmm. When it came to natural functioning ecosystems, he was this angel. And people don't understand that about Madison Grant. Another great book is Jonathan Spiro's... Um, uh, defending the Master Race, about Madison Grant. It's a whole book about him because he's such an enigma. Uh, he was almost single-handedly responsible for saving the bison from extinction by saving large tracts of habitat, for establishing four major national parks, uh, including Denali, and, and expanding other national parks. Uh, and he wanted to preserve large landscapes. He was the only person of authority at Save the Redwoods League ever, who wanted to preserve very large tracts of ancient redwood, hundreds of thousands of acres. And I make this clear in the book. He was continuously complaining about what's going on. When in 1920, when the League, um, the powerful people who ran the League forestalled an effort by the U.S. Congress to create a Redwood National Park out of the Klamath River, 64,000 acres of redwood untouched by the axe uh, would have been the whole lower river extraordinary park, uh, and Save the Redwoods League actively spiked that uh, in ways that I, I detail in the book. So one of the uh, premises that I posit in the book is that perhaps the League grew up as a counterweight to Madison Grant, because he was very wealthy. He was an incredibly intelligent attorney, very well-connected, powerful Puritan ancestors, 1620 landing in, in, uh, on the east coast of the U.S., uh, and uh, had already demonstrated his power in terms of locking up huge amounts of habitat, which is very unusual at that time. You know, there were the, all these national parks established that he didn't have anything to do with. There was an ethos behind that. But he truly believed in the need to protect large habitats, whether it was for, to, you know, to protect charismatic megafauna that he thought were the master race of species. I don't know. But it didn't matter almost um, because he understood that they needed large areas. Like the Redwoods needed, at least parks we have today are beleaguered. Um, so, yeah, but the white supremacy that ran through the League was evident right through the 1960s, mm -hmm. uh, through the leadership of the League. Okay, just to uh, kind of fast forward to when you got involved. So were you, uh, mm -hmm. you know, going into the forest, you decided to dedicate your life to it. What was that? What was that point like? What was that moment mm -hmm. like? That was surprising. Uh, I was a reporter, and that was kind of a career goal. And uh, by you know 1985, uh, I'd taken a job that was called The Paper in West Sonoma County, uh, right out of college. <coughs> and uh, I uh, began investigating redwood logging in Sonoma County. 
And at the same time, in late 1985, and everybody heard about this, at least on the West Coast at the time, Houston Corporation, Max Am, took over the Pacific Lumber Company. And uh, so I was curious about that. It revealed, that takeover revealed, oh, there's this company with all of these thousands of acres of ancient redwood that really didn't get talked about much. I didn't know about it. And like a lot of people, I didn't know that old growth redwood could still legally be logged. And it was this kind of trope that had been trotted out and nurtured by the timber industry that most people believed. And so that was eye-opening. And so in, in 1986, I continued working as a reporter. I had a lot of different beats. I won a couple of uh, journalism awards. And I actually was on my way to becoming editor of another paper. I got an offer. And I accepted it. And uh, I made my first trip uh, in October. It was November of 1986 to the ancient redwoods that Pacific Lumber held. We trespassed across some land and got to the edge of an ancient redwood forest that we would later call Owl Creek Grove, 1,000 acres uh, on the south fork of Yager Creek. And what I believe occurred, I only felt it then, but it was one of those feelings, these understandings that is uh, irrevocable. It's, it's now injected into you and you're gonna, it's going to stay with you the rest of your life, and it has. And it was this understanding that I have never experienced a wild redwood grove. Whereas I had experienced, I had been in and traveled through as a child and as an adult, all of the ancient redwood groves to some point, you know, and tramped through them uh, off trail, which you're not supposed to do. Um, but very much, you know, enjoying that splendor and, and uh, believing I'd really, and I had found these amazing worlds. But I had never experienced a wild redwood grove, a redwood grove that had no human impact, no human energy. And it was so transformative, transfixing, that I'd stood there for a while. You know, I was right at the edge of the grove. We couldn't get into it because there was this really steep draw, you know, down there. But there we were, the old growth right here and across the creek, and then this massive thing. And you could feel it. You could feel it. And that was the moment when I realized I can't take the job. And that day I called up the publisher and I said, I can't take the job. Wow. And, and I quit my job in, in Sonoma County and I moved north. So thank God for that. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Something came out of it. Yeah. So just when we were getting close to the close to half past uh, the hour, so I just really to, I guess, uh, there's a ton of facts in this book that you'll really, really enjoy reading, so we don't want to spoil too much. But I guess if the Redwoods hadn't been through enough, you know, we have Drexel Burnham and Michael Milken entering, you know, the market with the junk bonds. You know, maybe you could briefly take us through how that changed things. And yes. Um, well, that allowed for mid-sized companies, the junk bonds, to gobble up larger companies, liquidate their assets. And it was a very Reagan-era <clears throat> thing. There, there was a uh, deregulation that had occurred and allowed junk bonds to come into being. And I don't really, can't really explain too much. I'm sure people in here know better than I do what junk bonds are. But they were called high-yield investment uh, something. I don't know what. Um, and... They were used very high, high interest, high yield, um, which high yield, I believe, meaning uh, that you had to pay a lot of money. I don't know what it means. I'm not an economist, so I can't, and I didn't try to be in the book. Mm -hmm. um, but junk bonds, I think the word speaks for itself. Um, and so Maxam floated almost $800 million worth of these junk bonds. Uh, a smallish company gobbling up this, this bigger company worth 
the assets of Pacific Lumber were estimated to be valued between three and four billion dollars, and they owned a lot of assets that weren't redwood. And the thing about Pacific Lumber was between 1945 and then the Maxam takeover, uh, 40 years, the company had selectively logged its ancient redwood groves, leaving about half the trees. And um, they were the only company after World War II to log in that way, in a way that might be described as patient. And so what Maxam ended up getting was 56,000 acres of this forest type, uh, which was extremely important habitat. It was protecting fisheries and these, these very important um, anadromous fish streams in Humboldt County, and um, as well as wildlife dependent on old growth redwood species. It was still damaged. It was still, it's industrial logging is difficult to, on, on the land, but it was still those trees meant, meant a lot. And then um, the company also got 8,000 acres of uh, virgin redwood, untouched redwood, uh, in, in about seven groves, the largest of which uh, became Headwaters Forest at 3,000 acres. And um, the company immediately began clear-cutting uh, to a large extent, doubled the amount of acreage cut in 1986, doubled the cut of 1985 and changed the clear cutting, meaning they, they had tripled the amount of board feet being taken, and then they accelerated that. Um, so whole watersheds began to fail. And uh, the, it was so extreme that uh, the, you know, today flooding occurs where it never used to. Uh, a lot of old homesteads that never saw water now flood every year at the slightest rains. The streams are filled with silt. Whole roads and mountainsides failed, uh, and the land in large part was stripped clear, except for the small areas that we were able to save. Um, the, one of the most important elements of this was the collusion in this, what turned out to be illegal activity, by the state of California. Um, these, this logging occurred in violation of the Forest Practice Act, the California Environment and Quality Act, the Clean Water Act, and the U.S. Endangered, and State Endangered Species Acts. And the state of California, through the California Department of Forestry and the State Board of Forestry, were charged, uh, was charged with uh, enforcing these, these laws. They were the regulators on the ground. And they signed off on these ludicrously destructive plans uh, that everyone understood were, were illegal, especially under the California Environmental Quality Act, which uh, mandated that a project... Uh, and in this case a, a case, a timber harvest plan, had to be considered in conjunction with other logging nearby uh, that was done in the past, that w is being done right now, and will be done in the future. A very high bar. And so that provision of CEQA, is the name of that law, uh, was violated routinely. And so the Environmental Protection Information Center in 1987 uh, launched the first lawsuits uh, against MaxAm and CDF, the California Department of Forestry, later joined by Sierra Club, and then a lot of the so They won every case, except for one, uh, demonstrating clearly the illegality of this. The California State Attorney General eventually stopped uh, representing in court the California Department of Forestry because it has such a rogue organization. So that was another thing that we were up against. Not only this, you know, what was probably also an illegal junk bond takeover, of Pacific Lumber. It was a case study in Congress in 1987. Representative John Dingell, who wrote the Endangered Species Act, um, brought Max Sam, brought his CEO Charles Hurwitz in and, and grilled him on this, but still no action was taken. Um, 
But, you know, as you mentioned, Michael Milken, but also Boyd Jeffries and Ivan Boski all uh, illegally parked stock for MaxAm, which means they set it, they bought it and set it aside for their use because you can't own more than 5% to launch a takeover bid in some way. Again, I'm not an economist, but they all did this and they were all later convicted of felonies for, for various things. Milken in particular spent time in prison. Now he's a hero of San Francisco at the Giants games. And <clears throat> In any case, uh, you know, so it was just, uh, if you pardon the expression, a real shit show. And so here we are, you know, this ragtag band of merry pranksters wondering what can we do? We were up against the state of California. The federal government can't do anything, even Congress. Uh, we don't have any money to sue. So we took to the trees. We went to the forest, and that's the essence of direct action. You go to where the, the uh, violation is occurring, and you try to stop it in its place. And all we had was our lives, and that's what we had. So that's what we used. Yeah. It's incredible, and, and some of you sadly lost your lives. There was um, well, Judy, Judy Berry, uh, in, uh, infamously in 1990, was a victim of a car bomb assassination attempt in Oakland. Uh, most people are aware of that story. She was one of my closest colleagues <clears throat> and friends, and she died in 1997 of breast cancer. Uh, she did not uh, do Western medicine for that. I think mm-hmm. that she she didn't want to die. But she was in so much pain, she was permanently disabled and so traumatized that she, um, she used alternative medicine. But anyway, she died in 97. And uh, Daryl Cherney, who I co-founded Humboldt County Earth First with in 1986, he was also in the car. He had minor injuries. Um, the uh, fuel oil mixture in the pipe bomb didn't, didn't ignite, so they weren't immolated. Um, they eventually, you know, the FBI and the Oakland police conspired to frame them for carrying their own bomb. Uh, in 2002, Judy's estate and Daryl Cherney uh, won a $4.4 million lawsuit against the FBI and an incredibly egregious setup by that, that uh, agency. And, uh, and then in 1998, David Gypsy Chain, a Redwood activist uh, protesting logging, on Pacific Lumber land, uh, an angry logger who had been captured on tape threatening to bring his gun and kill them and to drop a tree on them, then did, and that was never investigated. One of the things I go into a lot uh, in the book is the impunity with which violence was wielded against activists, Mm -hmm. and that was extreme and and never abated by any person of authority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you were to recommend us visiting a redwood forest, where would you recommend? I mean, where is it? like it was originally in California. Yes. Um, well, Big Basin is always good. You know, they, they get crowded. Uh, one of the things that I'm trying to do, and if anybody wants to, like, write to the State Parks Commission, um, since you ask, I'm going to segue a little bit into that, that um, there's two roads that need to be closed in the Redwood Parks, and that's Newton B. Drury. The, uh, he was um, executive secretary or head of Save the Redwoods League for about 50 years with some gaps. Uh, Drury Parkway in Prairie Creek Redwood State Park, which I highly recommend people go see. It's a beautiful, stunning park. But this this road, this parkway cuts right through. It used to be the highway, but the state and the federal government built a uh, bypass so they could get the road out of the forest, but then they never closed the road. Um, and so it's a real intrusion into the very heart of this ancient redwood grove, right through the middle, right up the creek, right up Prairie Creek. And then the other one is the Howland Hill Road in um, Jedediah Smith State Park. And 
that is a 4.5 mile road, dusty dirt road that goes along Mill Creek, this important anadromous fishery, and spews dust for a quarter mile in, in all directions in the park. And that needs to be closed. There's no other reason except for people to crane their necks out the windows to see the redwoods from their cars. Uh, And then the argument that I just got, because I've been working on this from State Parks uh, director in Eureka, is, well, you know, we want to make sure disabled people can get in there. And it's always what's said. So, A, okay, you can have a permit system like you do with Tall Trees Grove. You you get a permit, you can drive in. You can also have a shuttle. Uh, Also, if I'm in a wheelchair... I don't want to speak for other for disabled people. I'm not one, um, but I'm the uh, those roads. Once the cars are off them, are going to make the world's greatest wheelchair access, the world's greatest. You know, beautiful, safe. You know, seven miles through Prairie Creek. You know, and you ride your bike, take the kids. You know, right now it's just a horror show of cars and dust and exhaust and and noise. And if you go, there's one place in Prairie Creek right off the there's a little trail right off the road, and there's this like cone thing. And I looked at this and what is this? And it's like put your ear up here and it blocks the sound of the cars. And you can hear the forest. I'm like, are you kidding? How can anybody think of this? What world are you from? What planet? So um, okay, so go to Prairie Creek. <laughs> Go to Prairie Creek and go to Jed Smith. These are extraordinary examples of the Redwood ecosystem. Um, and then the other part of that is that there's other, plenty of other roads you can drive. Avenue of the Giants, uh, Highway 101 goes through a bunch of Redwoods. But um, So those two, and then Redwood National Park is very nice because there is not a road going through the middle of that. There's Bald Hills Road skirting one side, and you can get into some very nice old growth in more of kind of a wild setting, which is what Sierra Club set out to do in the 1960s, and that turned out to be another Save the Redwoods League disaster you can read about in the book. Okay. Has, has anyone got any questions? I guess my question really is about the future and what's happening now mm-hmm. uh, with Save the Redwoods League, with the Redwoods, Redwoods National Park. Uh, some of us have probably heard about the Redwood Rising Project. How does this fit into the uh, the whole picture? Right. That's an excellent question, and I, I get that a lot. <clears throat> I did not cover the modern era, uh, and except to say um, in a couple of paragraphs that the League has transitioned to scientific inquiry, which has been very good in some respects, uh, especially with regard to climate change and the impacts on the Redwoods. And so they've done really the leading-edge work and funded leading work in that regard, and other science as well. They have some excellent staffers right now. Uh, And the the problem that I have is that the state of the parks, these tiny, tiny, really ancient redwood habitats, and that I think has to be our first understanding that this is habitat. This is, you know, the the marbled merlet, uh, a rare seabird that nests in old growth trees, uses the redwoods, and it's some of the best habitat left in their entire range up and down the western U.S. seaboard. Um, and so they are going to be disturbed by the cars that I just mentioned going on these roads. So I got, I got one hour with Sam Hodder. He's the president and CEO of Save the Redwoods League. I, it took me a month to get it. Uh, and I was surprised that that was all I was going to get to talk to anybody at Save the Redwoods, or at least in leadership, um, for a book about, you know, saving the Redwoods. Uh, <laughs> so in any case, I asked Sam Hodder about closing these roads. This is my shtick right now. This is where I'm going with it is, is let's start with this. This is something we can do like that. 
we can, we can close these roads and immediately improve the habitat in these groves, which we have to do. Uh, if nothing for the merlin alone, uh, you know, which, which, whose survival entirely might be uh, based on thriving redwood ecosystems. So I asked Sam Hodder, can we close these roads? You know, he says, well, we have no interest in, in closing those roads. And, and he also said, but that's a state park issue. We have no involvement. And that's a little ingenuine on Hodder's part because Save the Redwoods League pumps so much money into the parks that um, park service uh, personnel uh, leaders, when I talk to them, often defer to the league. So it's interesting. They punt back and forth to each other. Um, so, you know, the park service is really dedicated to access, which I think is excellent. I think everybody should experience the ancient redwoods and, uh, there should always be access. I think it needs to start to be limited. You can't even drive into Denali, you know, and that's what, how many million acres of Denali? I don't know if it's a million acres, but, uh, you can't drive into Denali. There's a lot of places where permit systems are being used right here in the Bay area, uh, permits, uh, I think are needed in some parks, uh, and especially in the, um, the Sierra, you cannot go backpacking without a permit and it's limited, uh, to protect the habitat. And we're not seeing that from the parks and we're not seeing that from the league. Uh, in terms of some of the science, there is some controversy over the parks and the leagues. They're in partnership here, uh, a program called Redwoods Rising, <clears throat> And I have to be honest, I haven't examined this very much. Um, I went up and looked at an area, Redwoods Rising. Uh, well, part of it, which is wonderful, is this uh, elimination of roads, old roads in the parks, and uh, restoration of stream habitat. And that has been excellent work, and the league has funded a lot of that. And I commend them for that. Uh, the other part has been the thinning of the Redwoods. And that has been more disconcerting because it's actually, you know, it's real logging. They bring in heavy equipment, chainsaws, trucks, to, and they take the logs and they sell the logs. Um, and so Redwoods Rising, I was wondering about this, and I asked uh, a colleague, um, he's a professor at San Jose State University, Will Russell, about it. Are you Will? Yeah. Oh, my God, I can't see <laughs> That's one of the best moments of my life, Will. <laughs> that is just fantastic. Uh, so am I blowing it for you? Yeah, you want to you talk about it? I wanted to mention your piece in Madro Madrono. How do you pronounce it? Madrono? Madrono. Madrone? Is it just Madrone? It's Madrono, yeah. Madrono, okay, Madrono. So, you know, a journal, scientific journal. And uh, uh, Will and a colleague published a piece uh, whose name I can't remember. I'm sorry, maybe you could say. Wh wh who's the other author of this? This is a graduate student, yeah. So this is a, a big deal. And we have, we have kind of a team working on this. So there's been a variety of students involved. Okay. Okay, great. So, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. It's so wonderful you're here. <laughs> I was going to say, should I go and sit over there? What's that? <laughs> Let him go. Oh, yeah, sorry. Come on up, Will. Yeah, we're doing this. Anybody else wants to, you know. Um, so that the, uh, the, the, the logging that is occurring in the redwood parks to thin and, and ostensibly bring the redwoods back to faster growing, bigger trees, and therefore a, a more of a climax forest, um, is actually uh, harming the regeneration of undergrowth and bringing in, it's allowing exotics to come in. And of course, the undergrowth is a critical component of the redwood ecosystem. And so 
uh, you know, Will's study, if I get it right, uh, is that, well, you can thin in a lot of different coniferous habitats, but it, it's mostly harmful in the redwoods. And I will also bring up, since it is public information, Will, that you were an advisor to Semper Virens Club, which started to do basically the same thing. And you and two other scientists uh, quit your advisory positions because of this very type of program. Is that correct? That's right. The whole science advisory committee resigned in mass right. over the same plan to, to thin commercially uh, in a preserve. Right, right. So, so those, those are very big issues. And then the one thing I haven't looked into yet that I'm very curious about is because the league um, um, board uh, is so top-heavy with uh, investors and people involved in, in climate, or I'm sorry, carbon credits. So I'm wondering what if there is a, a connection here with the almost 300,000 acres in parks and climate credits and, and the whole Redwoods Rising thing. And I don't know. And I don't know even that I'm going to look at it that much. Um, but... Uh, but anyway, so that's to answer the question that the league in the modern era is a mixed bag, um, doing some excellent work uh, and, and also some questionable work. Well, thank you, David. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've got to finish, I'm afraid. Sorry. But you, you'll be available to answer questions for, yes. for a bit longer. Yeah. Maybe over there. But I wish to thank you for the great work that you do and on thank behalf you. of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for helping us maintain our tradition of hosting 120 years of enlightened conversations. All right. Thank you. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Music.